The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. With uh, Romans chapter 3, uh, Paul says, basically everyone is a sinner. There is no one who does good. No, not even one. And the problem is, verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So that's where it starts. People do not seek God naturally on their own as sinners. None of us did. Those of you who are saved and Christians this morning, we all got saved because God initiated it. It was by his grace, by his mercy. He's the one that brought somebody into our life that gave us the gospel and the good news. And the spirit of God was working on our heart from the time we were born. The spirit of God uh, convicting us of sin, righteousness and judgment and trying to enlighten our understanding and rip away the blindness from sin and Satan himself and using the gospel to be a catalyst that we might be born again. So it's all the work of God. So uh, real change happens at an individual level. So let's go ahead and go back to Philemon. And I'll start at verse 10. And I just want to highlight some some evidences of real change that came about that God accomplished in the life of Onesimus, Philemon, the Apostle Paul, and everything in the worldview about Onesimus changed. And everything in the life and the worldview of Philemon also changed. And there's a reason for that. And so basically what I have here is a list of things that are evidences of real change. And these are things actually, you can write them down as we go, as we go verse by verse. And then you can just kind of examine your own life again. God, have you, done, have you made this kind of change in my life? Some of you, it's going to be easier to make that diagnosis than others. For example, some of you may have grown up in the church. And a good church. So I think of like my wife. We're very different, my wife and I. And that she grew up in a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. There was never a time where she can remember where she didn't believe in Jesus. And it's hard for her to pinpoint a time where she thinks she became a Christian. It's like, well, I always believed in Jesus. But you weren't born a Christian. Nobody is. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But I always believed in Jesus. So it's hard to pinpoint the day of salvation. Then there's me. I didn't grow up in a Christian home, Bible-believing home. Never read the Bible till I was like age 19. Read the Bible, boom, got saved, radical salvation. I know the date, the hour, the day of the week, the minute I was saved and prayed to God and he changed my life. I know exactly where I was in Santa Barbara, California at the time, exactly where I was standing. It was so radical and definitive. And so uh, I can go back, you know, before age 19 and just examine my life and see how radically different my life was before I became a Christian. And so some of you will be able to do that and note some of those changes. Uh, So let's look at some of these evidences of real change. Thank you, Robert. Uh, First evidence of real change is really answering the question, how is change possible? And I alluded to this. Look at verse 10. Uh, Paul says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, my child, Paul's calling Onesimus, the fugitive runaway slave. By all, we also pointed out that he was a thief. He robbed his master. He was a defiant slave. And then he ran away from his hometown, traveled a thousand miles, trying to hide in Rome. Providentially, sovereignly, God brings him into contact with the Apostle Paul. Onesimus hears the gospel and he gets saved. He becomes born again. He becomes a Christian. And he goes from being a fugitive and a thief to being called, Paul says, a child, my child. In other words, now he has a a relationship with the Apostle Paul that is the most intimate in all of human relationships. 
my child, Paul is his father. And what he means is Paul was his spiritual father. In other words, Paul was the one who gave Onesimus the gospel and he, he saw Onesimus come to Christ. And then Onesimus, when he was born again, he was adopted into the family of God. And so that's where the change started. So he says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, fellow believer, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. And so how does real change happen? Verse 10 is the key. The word begotten there in the New American Standard, if you look at it, begotten, what word is that? Well, it's ganao, and it means to be to be born. It's the same word, actually the same verb Jesus uses in John 3, 6, when he talks about you must be born again. And then in verse, well, that's verse 3. Then he goes on to verse 6 and, and talks about being born again is the same thing as being born of the Spirit, born of the Holy Spirit. You must be born of the Holy Spirit. And he's talking to a Jewish religious man, but it applies to everybody. If you are a human, you were born sinful. You don't know God by nature. Every human being is born separated from God, a child of wrath, born in sin, under God's condemnation and wrath. And that's why Jesus said, you must be born again, which means there's only one way to get back into a right relationship with God, and that is being spiritually reborn through the means that God has ordained. So that's why Paul said in Romans, no one is good on their own. They must be born again. You're born physically as a sinner. You must be born spiritually, supernaturally, by Almighty God, born again, born of the Spirit of God. And so that's absolutely key. And that's the only thing that brings real change. And so when we watch the news or listen to people in the world talk about change, 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 change. I should write a song, change, change, change. They are thinking superficially that they can actually make deep, significant real change apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ and apart from true spiritual transformation. And the Bible says, no, you can't. There's only one way for real change, and that is being born again. That's what Paul meant here. And we know what Paul meant by that, that Onesimus was born again. He was begotten of me, meaning it happened through hearing the gospel. The gospel means good news. And what the good news was that Paul gave to Onesimus, this fugitive thief, of a runaway who was defiant, rebelling against not only his master, but also the Roman government. You weren't allowed to run away from your slave and go from country to country to city to city. That is illegal. That's what Onesimus was doing. And then ran into Paul, and Paul gave him the good news, the gospel. And what he had to tell Onesimus was, Onesimus, according to God's word, you are created by God, the creator. His name is Yahweh. Whether you know that or not or believe that or not, you were created by him and you're accountable to him. And he is a holy God. He is the creator. He's also the judge. He will judge your soul someday. And Onesimus, you are a sinful person. You were born that way. You can't help it. You are just a sinner and you're separated from your creator because of your sin. And if you continue going as you are going, then when you die, you will face eternal condemnation and punishment from your creator because you deserve it. You are a rebel at heart. You can't change yourself, Onesimus. You will continue to be a thief, continue to be a runaway. Even if you want to change your behavior or modify it, you can't on your own. There's nothing you can do to make yourself pleasing and acceptable to God, your creator. He has to change you. And he's made a way possible that you might change. And it's called the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the son of God, came down from heaven. Jesus Christ is God, has always been God. Jesus Christ was equal with God the Father for all eternity. Jesus Christ helped the Father create this world in eternity past. And Jesus Christ willingly, who had no body, came down to earth at this time and took on a human body and was born through Mary, supernaturally. And he was the God-man. 
and he lived for 33 years and he never sinned and he was perfect. And he came for one purpose that he might suffer and die and pay the punishment of a holy God on behalf of sinners like you, Onesimus. Christ died for sinners as your substitute. And he absorbed the holy wrath of almighty God that you deserved. And then this Lord Jesus was buried and he rose again from the dead. The father raised him from the dead. He raised himself from the dead. And then he ascended back into heaven. And so this Lord Jesus is actually in heaven now, Onesimus, looking down upon planet Earth. He rules the earth. He's the judge of the earth. He's the king of kings. He sees everything. He knows everything. He's seen every sinful thing that you've done as a runaway slave, as a thief, as a fugitive, as a rebel. You can't hide from this God. And Onesimus, you need to repent of your sin. You need to admit you have offended your creator and separated yourself from him. And you need to embrace this Lord Jesus Christ, who is also Savior. And you cry out to him and you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Then you shall be saved. And to be saved means to have all of your sin forgiven. To be saved means to be born again spiritually by the spirit from above. Born again means you are now reconciled with your creator. You are now friends having once been enemies. And being born again, or being a Christian now, Onesimus, means that you have been redeemed by God. Redemption. That would have been very important to Onesimus, who was a slave. Because redemption is slave terminology. The Bible says, Colossians and other places, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the redemption of our sins. Meaning we were slaves to sin, slaves to Satan, and by believing in Christ, He literally bought us off as being slaves. He freed us from the slave market and adopted us into the family of God. And so those are no doubt the things that the Apostle Paul shared with Onesimus. And Onesimus was convicted by the Spirit. He believed it and he became a Christian. He was born again. That is verse 10. That is where real change happens. And then in following verses 11 to 25, let's look at some of the fruits of this real change. Because the Apostle Paul knows that there can be superficial change. There can be professed change that doesn't pan out to be real change. There can be people who are self-deceived. They think they're Christians. They think they were born again. They think they were saved when they were five years old. And then when they're 25, 35, 55, they totally turn their back on God, Christ, the Bible, on all of it. Abandon it. Sincerely believing at one time that they were saved. And there are others who are just hypocrites, pretend they're saved and they're not. And Paul lays out evidence of true change that happens in a person's life. Not just Onesimus' life that changed, but also, like I said, Philemon's life radically changed. Paul's life radically changed as well once he became a Christian. But real change starts at the individual level in the human heart through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's still true today. And so... What Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, 2,000 years ago to this very religious person, you must be born again. You must be born from above. You must have God intervene in your life. He's the only one that can change you. You cannot change yourself. It is the Spirit of God that will change you. It's only the gospel of Jesus Christ that will change you. That message still rings true today for every sinner. So today, if you don't know Jesus Christ, if you're not born again, if you're not a Christian, or maybe you're not sure, or you've been trying to earn God's favor, the Creator's favor, through human works, human achievement, some ideology contrary to the Bible. It's not too late. You can cry out to God, the Creator, the Lord Jesus Christ. God, save me. Change me. 
Adopt me into your family. Forgive my sin. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for sinners, for being buried and rising again in victory over sin on my behalf. You can cry out to God this day, and he will save your soul and transform you forever. So some of the evidences of real change. Um, One thing that was evident about Onesimus is that he was transformed. He was changed. He was made a new creature. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul said that when you become a Christian, you become a new creature or new creation. And that's from the inside out. There's a radical, supernatural, real, personal, intimate transformation. It's not external. It's not superficial. It'll manifest itself outwardly, but it starts on the inside. And God is the one that does it. You will become a new creature. So those of you that are Christians, you can think, okay, did I experience this radical change in my life? If you're a Christian, you did. Whether you can pinpoint a day or not, it doesn't matter. If you're a Christian, you've been born again, then God made you a new creature. We're not perfect, but God allowed us to be born again. He changed us. He put the Spirit of God in us the moment we believed. And so the evidence of his transformation is in verse 11 and 12. Look at how God changed Onesimus. Again, remember, fugitive, thief, defiant, runaway. Verse 11, Paul says, Philemon, I know that Onesimus ran away. He deserves the death penalty probably. He was formerly useless to you. Onesimus, I mentioned this earlier, means useful one. That's ironic. Onesimus, useful one. But he was actually useless to his master and probably a whole lot of other people. And so Paul acknowledges that. I know Onesimus was formerly useless to you, probably a pain in the neck. But now he's useful both to you and to me. So there's the real change at the deepest level. So when Onesimus became a Christian, was born again, immediately his character changed to the point where he he was convicted, he felt guilty, he was a new man. And now he wanted to serve the Apostle Paul, not hide behind the Apostle Paul, a prisoner, so that he won't be sent back. But now he wanted to serve Paul. Wow, you are God's man. You give direct revelation. You're an apostle of the church. Paul, I want to serve you. And so Onesimus quickly fell in love with the apostle Paul. And they became kindred spirits. And they were in the same family of God. And he became useful to Paul. Who knows? And so practically useful, meaning Paul's in chains in house arrest. Yet Onesimus apparently has a little bit of freedom. So who knows what Onesimus was doing on behalf of Paul? Running errands, getting him food, talking to friends, being a messenger, uh, giving a, a back massage, whatever it is. Being very practically helpful. And just had a sweet demeanor and spirit, uh, spirit now. And God made that change and that transformation real. He was formerly useless, uh, useless. Now he is useful and he can be useful to you as well. So that's part of real change is a transformation. You become a new creature at the deepest level in terms of your loyalties, your convictions, your thought life, your goals, your desires. And that happened with Onesimus. Another uh, evidence of real change is repentance. Onesimus was repentant. What do you think of this statement? In order to become a Christian, you must repent of your sin. Is that good or bad? Or how about this one? Repentance is part of the gospel message that we need to tell unbelievers. Whoa. Did you know that that is very controversial in the Christian world today here in America? Let me say that again. Repentance is part of the gospel message that we are supposed to share with unbelievers. If you're not familiar with that debate, it's alive and well here in America. 
depending upon, it's all over the place. Just less than a week ago, a brother in the Lord told me adamantly, kind of rebuking me, actually accusing me of preaching a false gospel. This is someone I know who's a Christian. Oh, I'm preaching. Why am I preaching a false gospel? Because you are telling unbelievers to repent of their sin and believe in Jesus and the gospel. Oh, okay. well, what's wrong with that? No, you just tell them to believe in the gospel. You don't tell sinners to repent. Sinners can't repent. Like, wow. So if I tell unbelievers to repent and believe in Jesus, that's a false gospel? Yes. Oh. Well, what about Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15? Jesus came preaching the gospel, saying, repent and believe in the good news. And then I shared Acts chapter 2 with them. Peter preaches this very specific, definitive gospel message. Here is Jesus, who he is, what he did to accomplish salvation. And he died for sin as a substitute for all of you. And and you are all sinful and wicked. And then when Peter was done, the crowd of 3,000 plus were overwhelmed with guilt and conviction. And they asked, Peter, what must we do? And Peter said, repent. Repent. And the Apostle Paul said the same thing. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and repent and you shall be saved. So repentance is at the very heart of the gospel message. It's the good news. And the only time Jesus used the word justified, declared righteous, declared holy, declared totally forgiven for all time in the gospels that we know of, Jesus used the word justified one time. And it was with that wicked sinner in front of the temple who was next to the Pharisee, and both of them were praying to God. And the Pharisee prayed first about how great and wonderful he was and how God was privileged to know him. And then the wicked sinner prayed next, and his prayer was simple. And all he did was beat his breast, look down in sorrow, and said, God, forgive me the sinner. That's repentance. Forgive me the sinner. And Jesus said, that man went home justified. That man was immediately declared righteous, holy, forgiven, born again. And then Jesus used that to preach the message of repentance to everybody in the crowd. You need to repent of your sin if you want to be saved and right with God. So Onesimus repented. He acknowledged that he was a sinner. Well, how do we know that? Well, we see the evidence of repentance in verse 12 and following. Uh, verse 12 says, I have sent him back to you in person. I have sent him back to you in person. So Onesimus, that's a sign of repentance. Onesimus, he's, first of all, he's running away from his master, Philemon. Now he's going back to his master. That is a literal 180 change. You know what the word uh, repentance means in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament? At the very root, it means to turn, to turn. That's probably the best definition of repentance collectively in the entire Bible. Repentance means to turn, to be going this way towards self, sin, hell, the devil, and you turn a 180 and go back to God, Christ, holiness. And there's the evidence of it in verse 12. He was repentant. Onesimus was a new man. He changed. He came to realize his sin, and he repented. I have sent Onesimus back to you in person. There he is. Here he is, Philemon. Standing in front of you. Did you know that Onesimus was with the very person who was handing Philemon this letter? And you can just imagine this slave owner, wealthy man, leader in the church, 
Philemon, who hasn't seen Onesimus' as runaway slave probably in months and months. And then all of a sudden, uh, Master, someone is here to see you. And it's a couple of the brothers from the Apostle Paul that were familiar to Philemon. And next to him, maybe following behind is Onesimus. I can't imagine what Philemon was thinking. Off with his head! Fortunately, by God's grace, he didn't have him executed before the letter was read. They hand to Philemon the, the letter. Philemon is reading this letter from the Apostle Paul, telling him, Onesimus, the runaway slave, is a new and changed man. He's transformed and he has repented. And here, the evidence is he's standing in front of you. That's amazing. So that's repentance. That's a sign of true change. Have you repented? Also, another sign of true change is Onesimus was faithful now. Uh, Paul says that he commends him personally. He's useful to me now. That mean, meaning he's established a reputation of ongoing faithfulness in ministry to the Apostle Paul. He's faithful. He's a faithful, humble servant. He loves me. He loves Jesus. He loves the church. And he proves it with his actions and his attitude. He's faithful. Faithfulness is a sign of true change in the life of a believer. I've sent him back to you in person. That is, I'm sending my very heart. Uh, we are emotionally attached I don't want to see Onesimus go. I've become attached to him, but I send him to you. And it hurts me to send Onesimus back to you because I love him so much. That's what he means. So there's great affection that has developed in a very short amount of time. Verse 13, whom I, I wish to keep with me. I want to keep Onesimus with me because he's useful to me. He helps me. I love him. He's a brother in the Lord. But so that on your behalf, he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, Philemon, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. I'm sending him back to you, even though I don't want you. He will be a blessing to me, but I know he'll be a blessing to you. And I rejoice in the fact that this changed man will be a blessing to you. He'll serve you the way he served me. I guarantee it. That's evidence of real change. Uh, Another evidence of real change is a new worldview. Christians have, should have a biblical worldview and a different worldview from the world. That's how you view everything in life. We should view everything in life through Scripture. Not just religion and spirituality, but all of life. How your philosophy of work, child-rearing, how you raise parents, your view of marriage, politics. Did you know the Bible has something to say about politics? Your view of the history of the world, your view of music, your view of economics, your view and how you interpret what's coming through the tube on television as you watch cable news or you read the news online? Is it going through the filter of a Christian worldview? It should. Because when you become a Christian, you're supposed to change. And with that, your whole worldview needs to change and be in keeping with God's word, Scripture. Evidence of that. Well, uh, there's a couple examples of that. One is Paul has a Christian worldview, a biblical worldview, that is in keeping with God's desired will about everything. And Paul views government the way way God does. And so Paul wrote Romans 13, verses 1 and following. That's the most definitive, concise, biblical view of government in the Bible, next to Peter's statement in the epistle. And basically, Paul says, God is the one that established authority. God is the one that established governments. All the authorities that exist have been established by God. And our obligation as Christians is to submit to the established authority, whatever it is, whether it's in government, in the home, locally in your city, in your school, at your workplace, your place of employment, on the sports team, the lousy referee. How did that lousy referee get to ref this game? Well, God put him there. God has established 
every authority that there is. And the Christian worldview or the biblical perspective is that you submit to authority that is established. That's point number one. Then Paul did amend that or added addendums to it saying, but it has to be in keeping with God's word. So if any authority ever tries to force you to be unbiblical, then you obey the higher law. So an example of a Christian worldview here from the Apostle Paul is the fact that the law of the land in Paul's day required him, according to Roman law, to send Onesimus back to his slave. Or, I mean, to his master. And Paul did that. Paul complied. Is slavery bad? Yeah, we talked about that. Especially the oppressive kind of slavery they had in the Greco-Roman world. And yet the law of the land said that slavery was okay, and if there was a runaway slave, you needed to send him back to his master if you know who the master is. And so Paul complies with the law of the land. He obeys Romans 13, probably because he wrote Romans 13. And he's complying with the law of the land. The amazing thing is, is that Onesimus, the new believer, adopts Paul's worldview about politics and complies and says, you know what? Wow, I don't want to go back to my master and be enslaved again. Yet Onesimus is a new man, a new creature. Paul explains Romans 13 to him or God's viewpoint. And Onesimus obeys. He submits. He's willing to comply, trust God, walk in faith, and go back to his master, obeying the law of the land. Because that was the law of the land. And so Onesimus does that. And that should be at the very heart of a Christian worldview for believers. The law of the land. And that's pertinent today. I don't know if you were watching the news this week of the caravan from Honduras and other countries of people who are leaving their homeland and trying to come and bust through the walls of the border of the United States of America, many of which want to come illegally. There, There is a way to get into this country legally. So... If you're a Christian, especially, you are obligated to be law-abiding, obeying the laws of the land. And and as I'm watching this debate going on now for years about the immigration debate, the illegal alien debate, I'm thinking, I've traveled the world, and you know what? It's kind of weird or ironic that every country that I've flown to or tried to get in, they made me go through legally. When I went to Ghana, I had to go legally. They just wouldn't let me in my way crawling through a hole or over the wall or whatever. I had to actually legally go through all the steps and the logistics and get a visa and all that stuff when I've been to Russia and Siberia and all these other places. And those of you who travel around the world, you, you know the same thing. There is a legal process that you honor, and that's basic to the Christian worldview because that is what God requires. So this idea that And if you haven't been paying attention for decades now, they used to call people who come into this country illegally defying the law. We have laws on the books that are legitimate, like every country does, that there's a process by which to enter a country. Follow the rules. Go through the steps. That is the law. It should be obeyed, especially if you're a Christian. Romans 13. And when I was growing up, those who broke that law and just came in illegally, they were called illegal aliens. And then with time, but that conjures up a picture. And so with time, they've changed that to get that picture out of your mind. Now it's undocumented immigrants, very different, or undocumented workers. They call them undocumented now because certain people are trying to deceive the public. So, yeah, this intersects with a biblical worldview and ethics and morality and what we view, how we view the law. And we should welcome people into our country, but it needs to be done through a legal law-abiding 
process. We can go into more on that, but that's just basic to Christianity. And so that worldview is adopted and complied with and agreed to by Nesimus, which is an evidence of his change. Because he was breaking the law, going from city to city, sneaking on a ship, uh, going into the city, getting into Rome illegally. He got into Rome illegally because he was a runaway fugitive slave and a thief. And now Paul requires him to repent, to change, restitution, reconciliation, obey the law of the land. Uh, One more evidence of real change in the life of Onesimus is, oh, obedience is a sign of real change. Um, And that's actually for Philemon, verse 14. This is evidence that he is in a couple of other verses, 14 and 21. Where Christian, if you're really a Christian, you have the supernatural ability for the first time in your life to obey. Did you know that a, a sinner who is not born again can't supernaturally obey at the level that God is pleased by? They can't. There's outward compliance and that kind of a thing, but only Christians can obey in a way that God is pleased with and requires. And that was true of Philemon. And Paul is asking him a high calling by which he is to obey. He's asking Philemon to obey by accepting and forgiving Onesimus, accepting him back, uh, being willing to forgive him of his debts. And also, probably the biggest thing he's asking him is, don't perceive him as a lowly slave anymore. Perceive him now as a fellow brother in Christ, a peer, an equal one, even if he still works at your house. Verse 14, but without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. I don't know if you believe in free will or not. Maybe some of you five-point Calvinists don't believe in free will. There it is. It's in the Bible. I think this is the only place free will is in the Bible. And Philemon had free will. His, But as an unbeliever, he didn't have free will. Only Christians have free will, and it's a limited kind of free will. It is the ability to obey God's requirement as it is revealed through his revelation. But our free will is still undermined by sin and temptation. But Paul expects him to obey. Verse 21, having confidence in your obedience. There it is. He knew Philemon, who's a mature, godly man, probably an elder at the church with a big, loving heart. He loves people. I am confident you're going to obey. You're going to do these hard things I'm asking you to do, Philemon. So obedience and the highest level obedience is a true mark of true change in the life of a true Christian. What does obedience look like in your life? I had to ask myself that all week. What is obedience in my life, especially in the hard areas and in the little areas and in the challenging areas? But it's the mark of a true Christian. And then finally, I'll close with this one. Um, If you're a true Christian, you have a different perspective. This is similar to having a a worldview that's different than the world, but... um, you will interpret reality different than an unbeliever, or at least you should in terms of the incidents that are happening, world events, what's going on in your life, uh, little things that happen at work, little things that are happening in your spouse or your child, and you interpret all of that through a different perspective than the world would. You interpret everything basically that God is in control. God is sovereign. God is working a plan. God is working all things together for good, for your good if you're a Christian. And that's how you see everything going on in life, even bad things, horrible things, things that cause you sorrow and suffering. God uses those things to accomplish his will. That is called providence. Providence. Providence has the word provide in it. And it means that God is working in our lives 
through our choices, through other people's choices, through natural events in life to provide for our good, to provide for our needs. And he does it over the course of time. All the contingencies in life, God amazingly somehow works all things together for good for us. Here's an example that Philemon understood the providence of God. He believed in it. And Paul is reminding him, beckoning him, you need to understand this terrible scenario in light of God's providence. I know, Philemon, you're probably hurt. You're probably frustrated. You're probably mad at Onesimus. Yeah, you have a right to be angry. Yeah, you want to give him consequences. That's true. But something better has unfolded in God's plan. Do you see it? It is the providence of God. Things are better now. How is that possible, Paul? Well, look what he says. Verse 15, for perhaps Onesimus was for this reason separated from you. So perhaps God allowed him to run away from you. Even though he's guilty, it was his choice. He's still accountable. I'm not justifying his behavior, but nevertheless, God did allow it to happen. God is ultimately sovereign and in charge of all things. For perhaps Onesimus was allowed to be separated from you for a little bit so that you would have him back forever. That's amazing. Have him back forever. How? Well, he's coming back now, practically now to be with you. He's coming back in a better circumstance and situation. He's coming back with a better servant's heart. He's coming back as a fellow believer. He's coming back as a member of the family of God. And he's coming back and he will be with you literally forever in the family of God. Not just in this life, but in the next life. That is the providence of God. And that's how we need to interpret life. So think about last week, all the horrible things that happened. Maybe it was a loved one who died, a loved one who was sick, a job that you lost, money you don't have, a conflict that you had, suffering that you have physically. If you're a Christian, you've got to hang on to Romans 8.28. God works all things together for good. And it's actually for God's good, but also for your good and my good. And he continues to work through the circumstances of life to provide for us. That is providence. God loves us. God is committed to us. We are his children. He is our father. We can have confidence in that. And that is a good note to go to lunch on. So before I pray, just a reminder that we have a song and we're going to have a plate come around for the benevolence offering. Thanks for your cooperation and paying attention. I know some of you are sleeping out there. Just because the lights are off doesn't mean I can't see you. But anyway, let's go ahead and pray and commit our time to the Lord. In prayer, Father, we thank you for this day. Uh, We thank you for the opportunity to gather with the saints, to be encouraged to love and good deeds, to worship you through song, to give to you through the offering, to hear the reading of your word, to study it together. We thank you that the Holy Spirit is here, working in our hearts and minds, teaching us. And God, may we not walk out of this place quickly forgetting all that we've learned from your precious word, but that we would continue to apply it to our lives. God, those that don't know you, that maybe have heard more about your glorious gospel, that you would use it to keep working on their hearts and reveal yourself clearly to them that they might embrace you as Savior. And they might know the glories of salvation. So we just entrust them to you. We thank you for all that you've given us. We love you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.